So this is where we need democracy in action, right? Because we've been very, the, the federal government's been very transparent about how much money it's putting out and where it's going. And this is where local communities and progressive individuals within these communities need to stay with the dollars, follow the dollars and make sure that the dollars are being implemented in a way across that meets the needs of everybody in the state and in the cities. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we're back at it again with another fantastic conversation with another fantastic guest. And so uh, the topic today is infrastructure. It's infrastructure week here at the Black Agenda Podcast. And, and since the president, uh, since President Biden signed one of his top priorities this week, we thought what better time to talk about how investments in infrastructure would actually heal our communities. And so to help us explain what's really in this bill that was just signed, we are joined today by Ms. Nicole Lee Ndumale. She is the Senior Vice President of Rights and Justice at the Center for American Progress. And so just to give you a little bit of her background, uh, Nicole has led organizations cross-cutting uh, work to advance bold, large-scale policy solutions that meet the long-standing challenge of racial injustice and sees the opportunity, the current opportunity, to build a better America where all people have an, an equal opportunity to thrive. And so uh, Nicole previously served in the Civil Rights Division in the U.S. Department of Justice as both a prosecutor and a legislative policy counsel. And just to wrap it up here, she earned her Juris Doctorate from Harvard University and holds a BA in American Civilization and African American Studies from Brown University. So like I said, a great topic, a fantastic topic, but we have another fantastic guest. And so, Nicole, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here and appreciate the very kind introduction. Of course, that's how we do it here at the Black Agenda. (laughs) But to get right into the, the meat of the topic. So again, it's finally Infrastructure Week. It's been decades. I don't know, it's probably been longer. But we can finally say we've had movement. We've got legislation that has passed both the House and Senate. It's hit the president's desk and it's finally Infrastructure Week. And so we wanted to talk about really infrastructure and inequality and what that really means. And so for a lot of people, when you talk about infrastructure and racism, it's like, well, that doesn't go together. Those th- those two things seem to not be in the same realm. But in reality, if you study American history, um, you know, infrastructure has really been used as a tool for, for a lot of people who may who are racist. And many people, including a lot of Republicans, will say that Well, they're just roads and bridges. Roads and bridges can't be racist because they're inanimate objects. You know, Tucker Carlson even said that on his show. So how could it be racist? It's just a bridge. But the conversation is really a lot deeper. We're not talking about the physical objects. We're talking about how they got there and the people, the humans that played a part. And so just to kind of start off the conversation, when we talk about racism and infrastructure, how do we need to frame this conversation so you can't use that old excuse of, well, you know, roads can't be racist? Yes, thank you for that question. It it really gets to the fundamental question of how do we define infrastructure and what do we mean when we're talking about infrastructure? I would say that infrastructure is really the physical and increasingly digital framework for driving economic economic opportunity and well-being. It's how we move goods and power businesses, but it's also how we connect people to jobs and services and opportunities 
and the way that we provide basic human resources, like even clean drinking water. So it's really the underlying framework that is the baseline for all of our standard of living across the country. And it needs to be done in an equitable way to make sure that there is an equal economy um, and equal opportunity for people to be a part of the economy. You know, that's an interesting way to put it, Nicole. And I'm glad you said that because I feel like that's the... um, that's one of the conflicts we saw in Capitol Hill between Democrats and Republicans with infrastructure and saying that Democrats are overreaching and trying to have all, you know, you know, have their cake and eat it too in this one bill. But what you're saying is so important because that's how infrastructure should be viewed because it's about opportunities, which leads to my question. Um, one phrase that I saw that was common in the 50s and 60s was the phrase white roads through black bedrooms. And it basically just describes how the government displaced communities of color. And one secretary, uh, Secretary Anthony Fox later said, after the first two decades of the federal interstate system, about 475,000 families and more than 1 million people were displaced. And kind of going into some of those other things that you're talking about with opportunity, even redlining was a part of this and just, you know, to kind of, you know, building the infrastructure system. So um, to kind of talk about that and what was happening, you know, explain to some of the you know folks that are listening how, you know, expanding our interstate highway led to the displacement of people of color and, you know, and just really left us behind in the progress, essentially. Sure. So the highways were as, as you mentioned, the Interstate Highway Act um, occurred in the 1950s. So 1956, the National Interstate Highway Act passed. Um, and it did, as you said, displace that number of families and individuals. But what's important to note is that this was happening at, at a time of government-sanctioned housing segregation. So what, what was occurring was economic opportunity, jobs, businesses were occurring in downtown neighborhoods and businesses. And there was a desire on the part of the government to provide financing and infrastructure for suburban development that was away from cities. And so there was a need for highways to connect people from their homes to their jobs. But underlying all this was government-enforced segregation, where it was really white communities that were going out to the suburbs and Black communities that were being left behind. So that there was First, the physical segregation. Then that was compounded by the fact that the highways that connected white suburbs to the core economic opportunities and businesses often went right through black and brown neighborhoods and either destroyed those communities or cut them off from being able to have access to all of those opportunities by by the way where they were placed. So it's both kind of going through communities, eminent domain, and cutting off communities. Um, And I can give a concrete example that might um, be helpful. Um, I'd like to talk about the the city of Detroit. Um, So there was a neighborhood in Detroit called Black Bottom. It was once a really thriving, predominantly Black neighborhood in East Detroit. It had Black-owned businesses, social institutions. It was famous for its music scene. There were a lot of churches, businesses, groceries, a lot of Black professionals, physicians, drugstores, all kinds of things happening in Detroit. Civic, political participation. It was a really kind of modern city at the time. Then a highway went right through that area and destroyed thousands of homes in Black Bottom, 
residents were given 30 day notice to vacate. It was decimated with little or no compensation to the families who live there to make room for the housing and highways that were benefiting not that community, but other communities. Um, and then apartment buildings and high rise structures and other things were moved out of the downtown. And so what you are left with um, is is the highways creating two different economic tracks of opportunity for those who are in the city um, and those who have the opportunity to go outside the city. But if you look at the current investment opportunities through infrastructure, what's happening today is um, current leaders in Detroit are looking at how to use infrastructure dollars to convert those highways, which are known for creating some of these equity issues and figuring out if they can be transformed into boulevards or other things that would reconnect the downtown with the adjoining suburban neighborhoods. So that's an example of how infrastructure both facilitated segregation and facilitated inequity. And by revisiting that infrastructure and seeing how to connect neighborhoods or use roads in different ways, there's opportunities to provide greater equity and undo some of the harms that uh, previous policies put into place. Absolutely. And, you know, we always say on our show, you know, people try not to point to racism when they talk about American institutions and American policies, but we often find that there's a common thread where a lot of things had racist undertones to them and infrastructure is no different. So I just wanted to make sure to point that out. Devin, I see that you unmuted. If you wanted to point anything yeah. else out before we go to break, you know, you've you, you got. Yeah, no, I'm, I think, <laughs> no, of course, I mean, there's always something we could say, but I think, you know, just hearing, uh, Nicole talk about Detroit and 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 black in the neighborhood Black Bottom and that area and what happened. It takes like my hometown is is Gulfport, Mississippi, and we we have a railroad that runs almost the entire length of the coastline, and it's a very stark difference between the beach side of you know the the railroad tracks, which is very affluent, it's high income, they have nice paved roads, streetlights, everything's all lit at night. When you cross over and you go into the neighborhood where my parents are from and my family's from, it's totally different. And that may not have necessarily been on purpose. I mean, they did run a railroad through there, but the stark, the difference between the infrastructure that's provided to our neighborhood is totally different than what's provided across the track. I mean, it's poor drainage everywhere. We just got the streets paved just a few years ago and, and it's not very well lit at night. And so you don't think about those things during your daily life and just why things are the way they are, but understand there may be some ra the racial undertones why when you go into a certain neighborhood, you can barely see or the roads are not paved well. All of that plays into, you know, that affects people's lives. If you drive on bad roads, that can cost you in car repairs more than other places where the roads, you know, are freshly paved. You know, if you have a poorly drained area, those things can affect you. And you don't see it necessarily on a daily basis, but that is what we're talking about when we say infrastructure and inequality and racism are all, are all intertwined. It's not a coincidence, you know, that the black communities and brown communities seem to be the ones dealing with the poor infrastructure and the things we're talking about and other areas don't have to deal with that. So that was my only point there was just to tell people, <laughs> we're not saying all infrastructure is racist, but it's just kind of like what Dr. Gale said last week about, you know, when you look at race, 
it just becomes you start finding these examples of of racism being in our uh, infrastructure system. And it's just not a coincidence that that's there. <laughs> but we'll go ahead and take our first break, Nicole. So when we come back, we'll get into kind of where we are and what the effects were of what happened in the 50s and 60s and what that kind of did to our neighborhoods. And so we'll talk more in depth about that. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Uh, remember, we're joined today by Nicole Lee Ndumale. She's a senior vice president of rights and justice at the Center for American Progress. And Nicole, to kind of talk, uh, you know, about the second segment, we're you know really looking at the effects of inequitable infrastructure, and we've kind of hinted around it. And even as as I lived in Baltimore, like I, I I imagine some infrastructure probably played into some of the blight that's throughout the city, just like Devin was explaining before the break with the blight in his city. And you talked about it, too, where you're talking about infrastructures more than just roads and bridges, but housing, Internet, jobs, even electric grids. We saw how Texas, you know, with the bad winter storm and how the infrastructure was so poor and what happened there. But one of the things I wanted to dive off into, Nicole, is that, you know, to me, when I hear, you know, inequitable infrastructure that really affects communities because businesses don't want to invest and establish jobs in that area because obviously if the roads are bad, there's you know no internet, no business wants to be there. So just wanted to kind of open up this segment and just, you know, how does the lack of infrastructure contribute to continued blight and lack of investment in our communities and other communities of color? Sure. Well, you, you just hinted at a bunch of it, which is people want to go where there's where there's consumers, where there's customers, investment begets investment, I would say. So not having invested in these communities makes it less likely that other businesses are going to want to open there. Um, there's There's so many challenges regarding the way that the roads divided communities and what housing was allowed in some communities versus others. So where you have a lot of single family homes and investment in a lot of suburban areas, there was chronic disinvestment in other communities and enforced segregation in those communities and a, and a lot more development of high rises or community products, projects or other things that did not lead to the type of equality um, or fairness that we would want to see. And it plays not o- out not only in economic indicators, but also health indicators. There's a lot of growing research about how health is very much determined by social conditions. And a lot of the lack of infrastructure in certain communities leads to poor health outcomes as well, not just economic outcomes. And so you can see that in some very concrete infrastructure ways in terms of lead pipes is one example. Another would be water and whether people have access to clean water, whether they have green housing, whether there's green space and clean air, all of these things are are infrastructure that there's a lot less investment in these communities of color, which leads not only to reduced economic opportunities, but also poor health outcomes. 
Well, I mean, you kind of served up the next question uh, perfectly. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to answer it, but um, but I mean, what you said is essentially that chronic disinvestment, you know, disinvestment in, in certain communities, particularly in our community, can lit- literally kill people down the line. Lead pipes, lead poisoning can kill people. Poor, you know, uh, poor air quality chronically you know, can kill people or lead to high rates of cancer and respiratory uh, issues. And people hearing us talk about it, it may sound ridiculous that this is, we're talking about infrastructure and racism can, can lead to people dying or any other chronic diseases, but this is real. You talked about lead. I mean, the Flint water crisis was a perfect example of this. Uh, And it's not, and that's not, that's one example, but that's, it's continuing to happen. And that's the thing I think people we want to get over it's like we're talking about infrastructure not in the 50s and 60s but 2021 where a city like bent harbor in michigan is now telling their residents not to use the water because it's contaminated with lead this is not 1950 this is 2021 and they have been trying to get the water fixed there in bent harbor for years and they've had no they've not been able to get any progress on it and now we're seeing what's happening and just one other example is there's actually a place in Southern Louisiana called Cancer Alley because there are so many petrochemical plants there and the majority Black residents have such high rates of cancer and other respiratory diseases that they've nicknamed it Cancer Alley. And so that was actually, I think it was a, a article or a story done by ProPublica is the one who actually put that together. So if you have time, definitely go read it. But just talk about how, you know, we're not talking about highways being run through neighborhoods we're really just talking about ignoring chronic ignoring investments in our communities when it comes to the infrastructure and the roads and how we're choosing where to put our waste disposal uh, plants and things like that just talk about how and why inequitable infrastructure continues to be a danger to residents not just economically but as you said your health and physically this can really actually harm people it, acts, it absolutely can harm people. There's lots of data that shows that if you don't have this type of equitable infrastructure, what you end up with is higher rates of pollution, unsafe air and water. You don't have quality and safe housing. Um, you don't have safe water to drink. There, You don't have a lot of the heating and cooling that is considered basic in many parts of the country, um, but you have extreme heat and other situations in communities that don't have this type of infrastructure. You don't have green space, parks, places for kids to grow, communities to thrive, um, communities to come together. All of those things lead to less healthy lives and outcomes when you don't have a lot of these basic parts of what builds communities, families, and neighborhoods. And, and just, you know, one follow up to, to that is when we're talking about these areas, a lot of them are large urban areas. Like I'm in Dallas and there are some neighborhoods in South Dallas that are pretty, you know, pretty rough off. And just talk about, you know, it's not as if people don't know that the roads and the air that they breathe is contaminated. And, you know, they have they're living in amongst an environment where they don't have the proper infrastructure but what do you think is is the driving? I mean, we could talk about race and, and inequality, but what really got us here? Because a lot of people will say, well, it's democratic leadership in these large urban communities that has got us to this point. 
So is this just a political failure or is this a, a, you know, a failure from folks just not getting involved and saying, hey, these are the things that we need. We need this investment in our communities. What do you think, not to put you on the spot here, but what do you think maybe are some of the things that have kind of led us to this point where it's not just all about racism, but there are some other factors there, too? I think it's a complicated situation where the infrastructure is is crumbling all over the country. And what you see in these communities who have been disinvested in the most is infrastructure is a challenge across the country, which is why there was the need for this historic investment in infrastructure. So that's the baseline. But always the communities who are experiencing legacies of historical and intentional discrimination are still going to experience that in much worse ways than the rest of the country because there's a baseline need for greater infrastructure for everybody. And then communities who have had the least amount of infrastructure investment are going to continue to have the worst effects of that. And I think what you're seeing is, is the reality of decades and really centuries of chronic underinvestment in infrastructure in historically segregated and redlined communities. Yeah, I could definitely second that too. And I think, I mean, I'm not going to say what could have caused it, but I could imagine that one thing is probably the fact that infrastructure has never really been like a bread and butter table stake issue. Um, you, you never really see a lot of politicians running on infrastructure. I mean, you may hear them say, I'm going to help with roads and bridges or jobs or things like that, but you never really see anybody talking about, you know, how we need to really rebuild our infrastructure. It's just, you know, we kind of piecemeal things without seeing that infrastructure is a part of the healthcare system. It is a part of bringing more jobs. It is a part of, you know, making sure that we can, you know, have a better public transit and things. So I'm glad that we have shifted in our country to where infrastructure does include more things and it's more broadly. So um, I think we're uh, ready to take another break here. Uh, listeners, uh, make sure you stick with us. We're having a great conversation with Nicole. We're going to get into our third segment after the break. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment. Remember, we're joined today by Nicole Lee Ndumale, Senior Vice President of Rights and Justice at the Center for American Progress. And Nicole, to talk about the third segment, we're going to be talking about, you know, a little bit what's on the table, not necessarily going to put you on the spot as far as knowing what's all in the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. That's the formal name of what we've been talking about. But just to kind of give some context to it, you know, the law includes a little over, you know, one trillion dollars for roads, bridges, ports, rail transit, safe water, even power grid system, broadband internet, list goes on and on. But what I look at is the fact that, you know, even though this number is huge, you know, a little over one trillion, I can't remember the exact number. Every community is going to be, you know, pulling for these funds. I mean, everybody, you know, from the African American, Latino, you know, Asia. I mean, everybody's going to be vibing for an opportunity to get these funds. 
President Biden and even the Congressional Black Caucus has said that this is going to be a win for blacks and that we're not going to be left out like we were left out with the interstate highway expansion. So my question, Nicole, you know, if, you know, obviously, you know, you, you're not the one making all the decisions here, but, you know, if, in thinking about how we can ensure communities of color kind of get a seat to the table, how do we make sure we hold the administration accountable to that promise to not leave us out? Sure. Appreciate the question. Um, so just going back to the context of what is in this, what is really, I think, historic um, infrastructure legislation, you mentioned a lot of the investments in roads and bridges and ports. Um, there's a couple of specific pieces that I, I would like to highlight that I think um, specifically will advance equity. Um, one of those is that there's $110 million in annual funding for the Minority Business Development Agency um, that will help minority-owned businesses grow and create jobs um, while working on infrastructure projects. So I think that's a really critical investment in terms of how will this impact or improve the lives of Black communities. Uh, another important piece of the bill in my mind is that there is $1 million, excuse me, $1 billion in funding uh, as part of a Reconnecting Communities initiative. And what that's hoping to do is remove some of the barriers to opportunity that are the legacies of this, a lot of this infrastructure, and particularly the highways that have divided communities of color that we talked about in an earlier segment. So this is a really intentional effort to put money towards finding ways and avenues to undo some of that damage. We haven't talked that much yet in the segment about digital infrastructure. Um, infrastructure to me is both physical and digital. Digital is how we learn. It's how we learn information. It's how we come, become part of the digital economy. It's how we can start small businesses. There's, there's so many reasons why digital infrastructure is key, not only to the economy, but to equity. And there's $65 billion in this for broadband infrastructure for rural, low-income, and tribal communities, which is also a, a really important aspect of, of the bill in my mind. And the final thing I, I'd want to point out, um, and again, this is not an exhaustive list. There's many things in this bill, but there's also $15 billion for lead pipe remediation. So when we were talking earlier about the way that some of these communities are experiencing adverse health consequences from infrastructure. This is another way in which there is a concerted effort to uh, address some of those um, economic and health harms. And I only only thing I wanted to say, Devin, I'm just glad you brought up the internet part, Nicole, because we've been talking a lot about how, you know, in rural areas and minority communities like communities of color, there's a lot of jobs that, you know, flee those areas because the workforce isn't trained or the workforce may not have the transportation to get to the jobs and different things of that nature. But like you said, if we have a better internet system, you know, people can live like in my hometown, you poor Mississippi, but have a job that's in Los Angeles because they're able to have internet and they're able to work remote or in the case of, you know, going back to school, you can, you know, obviously if you don't have good internet, you can't do an online mm -hmm. program or something like that. Or if you've got to pay for, you know, fast internet to be able to do that, plus pay to go to school, it's a lot of barriers and, you know, people don't realize how policies, you know, stack on top of each other. So you can't just, you know, do one without doing the other. So that's why I'm glad this infrastructure includes all that. But I just wanted to bring that up because it's, I'm glad you, you know, I, yeah, we haven't talked a lot about the internet, but with, you know, after coming out of the pandemic and seeing how big the internet is for us to be able to 
you know, live and operate and work even. Um, yeah, this is a big thing for minority communities. And can I just go back to a question that you had asked earlier about why we haven't seen more investment in infrastructure? Yeah. Um, I think there are a couple additional thoughts that we haven't yet touched on that I just wanted to, to bring up, which is some of the difference in the way we fund infrastructure in this country versus like in other places in the world. Um, so one, most of the infrastructure investments, uh, major infrastructure investments came in the 50s and 60s. Um, and that, you know, since then, the U.S. population has doubled. So whatever investments we did in highways and roads and bridges at that time is, is clearly not going to be sufficient for the current moment. But our spending since then is we consistently spend less of our GDP on infrastructure compared to like a lot of our peer countries, whether it's European countries tend to spend 5% of their GDP on infrastructure. China spends roughly 8%. The U.S. spends between like two and two and a half percent. So that gets to the question before, why haven't we been able to solve some of these problems is we just spend less money on it. We also do it in a more fragmented way in the sense that a lot of the investment in infrastructure, whether it's federal or state, is still implemented and relies on local and state spending to meet infrastructure needs. So that leads to it not necessarily being the same throughout the whole country. And some of these challenges that you were talking about earlier is even if there are federal investment dollars, it then goes to state and local governments to figure out how to invest it within their particular communities. So. Now jumping to your to your most recent question, which is what can we do to make sure that the current investment is um, advances black communities as well as all communities is to really make sure that the state and local governments that are getting these dollars um, are held accountable and use an equity lens in figuring out how to distribute the dollars within their communities. Because that's what didn't happen in the 50s and 60s when people were deciding who in their community was worthy of dollars and where they wanted to put that money it was not put into communities of color. So there's, there's a value that the federal government has had in putting certain number of dollars towards programs that we know will have impact for communities of color, but there's still a big role for state and local governments to play in making sure that the way that they implement those dollars is equitable across all of their, all of the residents in their cities and in their states. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I had a question, but I, I actually want to ask a different one because, you know, when you were talking about who's going to be actually making the decisions as far as how this money is going to be used, it's largely going to fall on the states. And that, I think, might be the crux of the issue when we talk about the chronic disinvestment is that you can have far different investment, you know, goals in, say, California versus, say, Mississippi, where we have seen that there is just not a focus on infrastructure at all, especially, you know, in our communities. And so I think even for the Biden administration, I want to say it's Susan Rice is kind of leading the charge as far as ensuring that the projects the government money is going towards um, are being, you know, chosen with a lens on equity and making sure that these projects are, are being looked at and, and um, the goal is equitable, you know, infrastructure with these dollars, but there's only so much the government can really do. And so maybe, you know, just, I mean, do you have any concerns that we could see maybe not a full repeat of what we saw in the fifties and sixties, but 
although we are getting ready to back up a a Brink's truck and give a lot of money to the states, do you think we will still see some of that inequity where states like New York and California and the more liberal places may see more equitable infrastructure investments, but the southern states in particular, where the majority of the Black population actually lives, still won't see the the gains in the infrastructure investments that we really want to see? Are you concerned that we may not actually see it? So this is where we need democracy in action, right? Because we've been very, the the federal government's been very transparent about how much money it's putting out and where it's going. And this is where local communities and progressive individuals within these communities need to stay with the dollars, follow the dollars and make sure that the dollars are being implemented in a way across that meets the needs of everybody in the state and in the cities. Um, I think the government can, federal government can lead by example. It can provide sample programs. It can provide sample metrics, but it really will be local decision makers who are making these decisions. So I think that there's a real role for advocacy organizations, for grassroots groups, for civil rights organizations to be very involved in this um, and see where the money is going, advocate for money to go to specific programs that are really needed. Um, and and track it and see where it goes. Yeah, I definitely think you're going to see a lot of party lines because um, I know we've talked about how, you know, I think there's 27, uh, you know, Republican governorships, 23, you know, Democratic governorships. I think Republicans control about 50-ish to 55% of, you know, state legislatures. So I would imagine that there's definitely going to be some uh, party lines here and there. But what we're going to do, listeners, we're going to wrap up our third segment and we're going to give you another break. And when we come back, we're going to end our conversation with our final message. Uh, So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. We're doing our final message here. Remember, we've been joined today by Nicole Lee Nindumale, Senior Vice President of Rights and Justice at the Center for American Progress. And as always, uh, Nicole, we like to end our episode with the final message just to give us something hopeful to end on. And the thing that I saw that was really, really hopeful out of this infrastructure bill was the fact that we got 19 Senate Republicans and 13 House Republicans to vote in support of the bill. Even Mitch McConnell, though, we don't you know, we haven't really endorsed him at all. Um, He voted in favor of the bill. And it's it seems it's not often that you really get such you know, large uh, bipartisan support on anything, you know, within Congress. So we just wanted to kind of end on maybe a good note, you know, in in saying that with with this insight and even going back to your piece in July that you wrote talking about how the Biden administration could really work to advance racial equity. Do you feel hopeful that we're now at a point to where the fight for racial equity is now on the table? I do feel hopeful. This is first time in modern history that I can remember where you have a president of the United States who has vocally and consistently said racial equity is at the center of my agenda. It's, it's at the center of my legislative agenda. It's at the center of all of the executive work that I want to do. And, 
when you look at the provisions in the infrastructure bill, there are many provisions that have that equity in mind. I'm also hopeful that this is this is a, a, a tremendous start, but it is not the only thing that the Biden administration is is aiming or hoping to do. And at the same time, we are in a in a place where um, the House is voting or may now be voting, I've lost track of the time, on the Build Back Better Act, which is another, would be another huge and historic piece of legislation and investment um, in our economy, in our, in, in our people that would lead to even additional equity. So I think that there's so much more to come um, in the years ahead, and I am excited to be a part of it. And I know you are too. That's a great message. And yes, I mean, we're, of course, excited to, to see the Build Back Better, back, build back better plan <laughs> get across the finish line and get to President Biden's desk. Because that is when, when you say rethinking what we call infrastructure, that is literally it in black and white on paper. It is rethinking the word infrastructure because it's a lot of different things in there. Um, when we talk about it. And so a lot of it will, you know, get to our communities and hopefully we get that inf- investment. But um, just as a final thought for the episode, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us about, you know, infrastructure. It's not the, you know, we always say this, it's not the sexiest topic, but it is finally infrastructure week. And it is good to at least get some history of how we got to this point. And like you say, the chronic disinvestment not just at a local level, but just federally, even we've ignored our infrastructure for a very long time. Even now it's affecting us with the supply chain shortages because our ports are far behind the rest of the world. As far as being modernized, I mean, you go look at some of the other countries, we are far behind and that's hurting us right now because we can't get, you know, these, these container ships unloaded fast enough because our ports just aren't big enough. And so those, when you talk about infrastructure, it seeps into every sector of the economy, but also people's lives. It can literally go down to Main Street and talking about the air that people breathe, the food that they eat, what the roads that they drive on. So when you when we talk about infrastructure, if you hear infrastructure on the news or in the article, take, take a minute and actually read it because it could be more than just the roads that you drive on and what that means. And so I appreciate you, Nicole, bringing on you know, you know your perspective. And hopefully, you know, we're hopeful that the Build Back Better plan does get across the finish line. But this is, like you say, just the start of many things, hopefully to come uh, with the Biden administration. So thank you for for coming on the show with this. And I know Adrian has some thoughts as well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, Nicole. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know, we know that uh, Biden is in the White House because of people of color. You know, his, his, his campaign was dying until South Carolina, and that was some, some gas to kind of get him over the finish line. So there's a lot that I wouldn't say that he owes, but there's a lot of different communities that are saying, you know, we got to have some progress because after four years of Donald Trump dividing us, we really needed someone to actually address these issues. So I think, you know, as all, all three of us are very hopeful listeners, we're hope that you are hopeful of what's happening in the administration, what's going to happen. Um, remember, listeners down the road, we're going to have a conversation talking about some of the Biden administration's big spending bills and talking really about if we can afford those things. A lot of people have been arguing about you know affordability and things like that. So we're going to have a later conversation on that. 
But Nicole, we appreciate the conversation we've had with you to make sure that we get a firm understanding of how infrastructure can be, um, you know, a proponent of racism. And we've got to work to make sure that on the local and state levels, we make sure this money goes to where it needs to be. So listeners, we're going to end our conversation with Nicole. Remember, she is the Senior Vice President of Rights and Justice at the Center for American Progress. Nicole, we appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Wonderful to meet you both and really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much. Perfect. Absolutely. So listeners, Devin and I, we're going to give you another break. And when we come back, as always, we got to do our ending so you can get some insight into our upcoming schedule. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back listeners. So as always, we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. Uh, So first up, We'll be back with you this Saturday, uh, December 4th, uh, for our weekly roundup number 23. That means we're getting very close to the end of this season, but we'll be back with you this Saturday, uh, December 4th, to bring you some more news. Uh, we cover politics, entertainment, business, you name it. Funny, odd. We're probably going to talk about it. So make sure you tune in and hear me and Adrian discuss the biggest topics that are happening around the country. So again... Saturday, December 4th, weekly roundup number 23. Make sure you tune in for that. After the weekly roundup number 23 on Saturday, we'll be back with you on Tuesday, December 7th for our regular scheduled episode. And this time we're going to be talking about misinformation and how these lies spread online. So we're going to be joined by Mr. Mike Webb, who is the Senior Vice President of Communications at the News Literacy Project. And so, again, we're going to talk to him about the this, this era of misinformation that we are currently in. And how this information that we know is, is, you know, false is even being able to be spread online. So we're going to dig into all of that with uh, Mr. Mike Webb. Again, he's from the News Literacy Project. That episode is going to be coming to you on Tuesday, December 7th. So make sure you mark your calendar, following us on Spotify and the other podcast channels so you don't miss out. It's going to be a great episode. Uh, before we go, again, we said it last episode. We're going to say it again. This is the season of giving. And we hope you're in a giving mood as you listen to the show and you feel the urge to donate because you can help us out. And there are actually some ways you can help us. And Age is going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely, Devin. We always talk about giving because Devin and I were trying to do something. Um, you know, in America, it takes money to do things. We can have great intentions, great ideas. Uh, you know, we have great episodes, but it even takes money to put these great episodes out. Um, you know, we have to have Alitude, Podbean, Zoom, Zencast, all these different things cost money. Even to promote, we have to use Canva and that costs money to have that. So listeners, when you give to us, know that you're helping us to operate, to put out great content, but you're also helping us to build because Dev and I, we're going to build an organization around the different topics that we're 
you know, working to advance and the different, you know, topics we're working to promote in communities. We need you to do that. Go to our website, blackagendapod.com. If you're listening to us in the Podbean app, there's a donate button right there as you're listening. When you get in there, you're going to notice that there's a lot of different levels that you can give and become a monthly patron. When you become a monthly patron, you get something monthly from Devin and myself. You might get a shout out. You might get to appear on our show. You might even get to be a part of our think tank that's helping to create different content. But we'd love to have you become a monthly patron so that you can help to expand the vision of the Black Agenda Pod. Uh, uh, Black Agenda Podcast. So again, go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click the donate tab and start giving. The other thing that we like to mention is our charity of the month. And I believe we're rounding off towards the end of the month. So this is going to be one of our you know last times mentioning this, but November is National Diabetes Awareness Month. Uh, we want to make sure to recognize an organization that's fighting uh, diabetes, the American Diabetes Association. Their vision is a life free of diabetes and all its burdens. Their mission is to prevent and cure diabetes and to improve the lives of all people affected by diabetes. So, uh, yep, this is actually uh, November 30th. So that's the last Tuesday of the month. So the last time you're going to be hearing about uh, uh, Diabetes Awareness Month, the last time you hear about National uh, American Diabetes Association. So if you haven't already, go check them out. Go learn about diabetes. Before you give all your money away, though, go to our website, <laughs> blackagendapod.com, and click that donate tab. I like that. Before you give all your money away or spend it at the store, <laughs> make sure you give a little bit to us and the American Diabetes Association. Uh, before we wrap up here, we also wanted to give a, a thank you to our guest, uh, Nicole Indumale. We wanted to thank her for giving her time and talking with us about infrastructure and what that really means um, to our community. So thank you to her. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. It was awesome. Uh, before we go, we have a little bit of homework for you. If you're not following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you really should be because you're missing out on some great content there. Um, you can find us. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. So make sure you're following us on all the major platforms and make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. Just go in there and search the Black Agenda Podcast. We have a great catalog of uh, conversations ranging from critical race theory uh, to talking about politics in Mississippi. You name it, we've probably talked about it. So make sure you check out our, our past episodes um, on YouTube. And so lastly, we wanted to thank you for listening and, and downloading the show if you can, share it with your friends, family, coworkers, and help us try to grow this thing here. Our goal has always been from the beginning to educate our listeners, and we hope that we are accomplishing that. So for me and Adrian, we thank you, and we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.